getting close now to the, to the end of our series in this book. Let's pray together uh, as we come to this hearing of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for the gospel of Christ. We are going to be reminded today of just how essential gratitude is for a life that is pleasing and worshipful before you. So we do want to express our our thanks, Father, and our praise and our gratitude for what you have done. We ask now, God, that you would give us ears to hear the word that you have delivered to us here in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. We are so quickly captured by lesser things. As we heard from our brother Daniel praying, we're so easily caught up in what's going on today. We lose sight of the eternal. Father, help us to bring the reality of the eternal into today so that we live more for the glory of Christ. Today is significant, God. It's what You've given us to do. Today is Your will for our lives, but we want to live it in light of eternity. So help us, God, to hear Your Word. pray that You give me grace, that You would keep me from error, that I could preach clearly, Father, and faithfully the Scriptures. pray that You would give Your people discernment. Your Word is life, Father. It is food. It is for our good. Give us discernment, Lord, that we would be able to tell truth from error and hold on to the things that are true and, and grow, Father, deeply rooted in the Gospel. Father, we pray these things confident that You hear us because of our Lord Jesus who is seated now at Your right hand. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 12 is something of a pinnacle in this book. You can think of our sermon series in Hebrews like a trek up a high mountain. Think of it like a trek up a high mountain. We've been in Hebrews for over a year now. And along the way on this trek, we've noticed some consistent features of the book's landscape. Hebrews is known primarily for three features, three things. Rich gospel exposition, sober warning, and encouraging exhortation. Rich gospel exposition, sober warning, and encouraging exhortation. Nearly the entire book fits into one of those categories. The author has explained to us the realities of Christ's person and work, His superior priesthood, His superior sacrifice, His better covenant. He has warned us against our tendency to drift, against sluggishness, against the horrible fate of falling away from Christ. And He has exhorted us time and time again to enter God's rest, to hold fast our confession of faith, to boldly approach the throne of grace, and to run with endurance the race set before us. You see, if you had to describe what we've seen throughout our trek, those three features would be a good summary. Rich gospel exposition, sober warning, and encouraging exhortation. Here in this passage, each of those features reaches a pinnacle of sorts. Chapter 13, which is what we'll get to next week, is really like the epilogue to the book. It's almost like a postscript. It's still rich and full, But the climax happens here in chapter 12. We get a final compelling picture of what has marked the book from the beginning. If you you look through the passage, you can see how this plays out. Look there with me. Verses 18 to 24 are rich gospel exposition as the author presents a contrast between life under the old covenant and life under the new. Then in verses 25 and 27, there's a sober warning where the author reminds us to listen faithfully to the Gospel since there is a great final day coming. 
And then in verses 28 and 29, the chapter concludes with encouraging exhortation as the author urges us to grateful, reverent worship in response to the unshakable kingdom of God. So you see how it all kind of comes together? The key features of the book reach their summit here. They reach their climax. It's a pinnacle in our trek. Now, understanding this big picture will help us as we work through the passage. We won't encounter much that is new here in terms of new concepts or new doctrines or new ideas in the book. We won't encounter much that is new, but we will see the author's pinnacle point summary of how we should faithfully live as God's people in light of what Christ has done. In fact, I think that's the good way to kind of break down this text and to summarize it. This passage gives us three marks of a faithful Christian. If you're wondering what it looks like to live the faithful Christian life, then I think this passage is a means of God's grace to us. Three marks of a faithful Christian is what we'll take away from Hebrews 12 today. And my prayer then is that by considering these verses, God would work in us the kind of faithfulness that brings honor to Christ and does good to His church. So with that, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. May God now bless the preaching of His word. We said a moment ago we're going to be considering three marks of a faithful Christian. The first is found in verses 18 to 24. The faithful Christian remembers the gospel's greater blessings. The faithful Christian remembers the gospel's greater blessings. These verses are a masterpiece of gospel exposition. The author's goal here is to remind us of the incredible realities of the good news of Christ. 
But instead of recounting those glorious realities in a list, the author presents us with a memorable and vivid contrast. I'm sure you heard it as we read. The contrast focuses on two mountains. Or we could say more accurately, on two covenants that are associated with those particular mountains. The first is Mount Sinai. Look again at verses 18 and 19. You'll notice the author speaks of coming to fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest. That language comes almost exactly from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, and it describes Israel's experience at the foot of Mount Sinai. I'm sure you remember what it was like. As you've read the story before, it was at Mount Sinai that Israel received the law, and it was at Sinai that the people encountered the Lord God in all of His terrifying, holy glory. It's one of those texts where people say, I wish God would just appear to me like He did to folks in the Old Testament. I say, no you don't. It was terrifying. And that's what the author mentions here in verses 18 and 19. As he keeps going though, he highlights one particular aspect of Israel's experience. It was that of fearful separation. Look at verses 20 and 21. No one, not even an animal, could come near the mountain. They had to build a fence lest the people break out and get too close to God. And the entire experience was so terrifying, even Moses was afraid. Moses, the covenant mediator, the man whom God spoke to as He speaks to a friend, Moses is afraid. You see, this was the reality of life under the Old Covenant. That's what the author is getting at. This was the reality of life under the Old Covenant. God's holiness was manifested in such awful sight that the people felt in a tangible way their fearful separation between themselves and God. But there's good news here. In fact, the author writes these verses in order to help us see the good news. The good news is that we have not come to Mount Sinai. That's the author's point in these opening verses. Sinai was terrifying. The old covenant was insufficient. But we have not come to that mountain. We are not under that covenant. As believers, we have come to a different mountain. Look at verse 22, where we get the other side of the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What a change. What a change in a span of five verses. Gone are the gloom and the fire, the tempest and the thunder. Instead, what we encounter here is nothing less than the heavenly dwelling place of God Himself. Don't miss that contrast between what is earthly and what is heavenly. In verse 18, the author says, you have not come to what may be touched, what's earthly, but you have come to something heavenly. Israel met God at an earthly place, at a physical mountain, Sinai. But the mountain believers have come to is not earthly but heavenly. It is the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, the glorious Mount Zion itself. And since this mountain is heavenly, it will never pass away. That's what the author wants us to see. He reminds us we have come to God on the basis of something better. A new covenant. In fact, an eternal covenant, the author will say in the next chapter. An eternal covenant that will never fade away. Now at this point in the passage, the author does something interesting. We might expect him to give us an exhortation that calls us to live for this heavenly city. That's been his pattern throughout the book. He 
exposits truth, and then he exhorts us to live out of that truth. Exposition, then exhortation. That's been his regular pattern, but that's not what happens here, at least not yet. The exposition is coming later, but at this point, the author gets carried away with the glories of the Gospel. I'm sure you heard it when we read the passage earlier. After he mentions Mount Zion, he gets on this roll with description after description after description of the blessings of the new covenant. You see, the author of Hebrews has been rightly affected by the reality of the gospel. He cannot mention the gospel in passing. He's not content with a simple reference to the new covenant. Even the mention of Mount Zion causes him to get carried away with euphoria over the gospel's greatness. We should learn from this, friends. We should read the author's words in verses 22 and 24, 22 to 24, and we should think to ourselves, I want to see the gospel like that. I want the glory and the blessing of the gospel to be so real and so fresh that I can't help but be carried away with heartfelt reflection and praise. I want to be that kind of Christian, one who feels deeply the glory and the blessings of the new covenant. I want to be that kind of Christian. I want our church to be full of those kinds of Christians. Those are the kinds of Christians that cause the evil one to shudder. Those are the kinds of Christians that refuse to back down in the face of darkness. This world is a dark place. Only people who have deeply appropriated the gospel are going into that darkness. I want to be that kind of Christian. I would have stopped with Mount Zion and put a period. I want to be the kind of Christian that feels the depth and the weight. I pray that's what you want to be as well. So, in an effort to cultivate that kind of joy and depth in us, we're going to just slow down right here. We're just going to pause. We may have to go faster at the end, but I don't care. We're going to pause right here, and we want to consider each of the Gospel's blessings in verses 22 to 24. There are six of them, if you like to take notes. And I'm not concerned so much that you get all of the details of each one. Rather, my hope is that the cumulative weight, the cumulative weight would impress upon you, again, just how magnificent a gift it is to know God through Christ. So, for the sake of our joy and for the sake of the world's good, listen to these six gospel blessings. Number one. Through the Gospel, believers have freedom to enter God's presence. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem all represent the same reality. The dwelling place of God. And that's the author's point. Through the Gospel, we have come to that dwelling place. Into God's presence. He does not keep us at arm length. He brings us in. And just in case we miss the significance in verse 22, the author makes it crystal clear in the middle of verse 23. Look at what he writes. We have come to God, the judge of all. Friends, that is a staggering statement. We have come before the heavenly judge and we are not destroyed. Our lives are open before Him to whom we must give an account and yet we are not cast out. This is a blessing the Old Covenant could never provide, but it is something that belongs to every believer through Christ. So if you belong to Christ today by grace through faith, the living God has opened the way for you into His presence. And what's more, He wants you near to Him. 
He wants you to draw near. He wants to know you. Christian, is that how you think of the Father? As as having done all that was necessary to open the way for you to come near and then inviting you to come into that place with Him. Don't miss the kindness of God in this gift. He wants to commune with you. His heart is not miserly. He wants to commune. He wants to know you. And He wants you to know Him. So draw near to Him today by faith. Through the Gospel, believers have access to God's presence. That's number one. Number two, through the Gospel, believers participate in heaven's joy. Believers participate in heaven's joy. Look at the last part of verse 22. We have come to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. Angels are associated with God's presence. And here we see believers have come to an innumerable host of these heavenly servants. But these angels are not merely present. They have come together in feastal gathering. In other words, they have gathered for a joyous, momentous occasion. They're happy to be there together, this this heavenly host. So, here's the key question. What is the occasion that they're so joyful about? Our entering into God's presence. That's the reason for heaven's joy. What a change this is from Sinai where God's people drew back in fear. Now we draw near, and when we draw near, heaven rejoices. May we remember this, brothers and sisters. Because of Christ, the Father rejoices when He thinks of us. His heart overflows with gladness when we draw near. When we come before Him in prayer, even with our needs or to confess the same sin once more, He is not exasperated. He does not huff with frustration. He rejoices. Is that how you think of Him? He rejoices. The angels of heaven reveal God's heart. The angels do what God does. They're rejoicing, which means He's rejoicing. Through the Gospel, believers participate in heaven's joy. That's number two. Number three. Through the Gospel, believers have a secure identity as God's own people. A secure identity as God's own people. Notice verse 23. We have come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The key here is that term firstborn. That's a rich word. It's used here in Hebrews to describe the Lord Jesus. And it reveals His identity. Jesus is God's firstborn. The unique Son of God. Eternal, uncreated, and equal in all ways with His Father. So when the author says we have come to the assembly of the firstborn, he he means we have come to share in Christ's identity. We are now defined by the firstborn of God. The Lord Jesus Himself. The unique Son of God shares His status with us. Try to grasp the magnitude of that, friends. What belongs to the Lord Jesus, He freely gives and shares with you if you know Him by faith. We are counted as the people of God because we are found in Christ, the Son of God. But there's more. That identity can never change. Notice where this assembly is found. Enrolled in heaven. You heard it whenever Rachel read from Revelation 21. All the names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what enrolled is. It's enrolled in heaven. So ask yourself, is there, any, is there any enemy you face here on earth that could reach into heaven to overthrow the Lord Jesus? Well, of course not. He reigns from heaven precisely because He defeated the worst enemy of all, death, and therefore nothing can possibly touch Him. 
And that is the author's point. Our identity as God's people is secure because it is rooted in Christ who reigns now in the power of His own indestructible life. This world may take everything we hold dear, but it cannot change who we are. Think about that. They take everything from you. It cannot change who you are in Christ. From now until eternity, we will remain God's people because we are hidden and secure in Christ Himself. That's number three. Number four. Through the Gospel, believers have the certain hope of acceptance. Through the Gospel, believers have the certain hope of acceptance. Notice the last line of verse 23. We have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What a powerful reminder this is. Remember, friends, the old covenant was entirely insufficient. Hebrews 7.10 The law made nothing perfect. Nothing. But here, the author says, believers have come to the spirits of of the righteous made perfect. How has this happened? Hebrews 10.14 For by a single offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's good news, friends. Because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, gives us His righteousness, we are made perfectly righteous before the Holy God. So be encouraged then, brothers and sisters, because of Christ, you lack nothing in your relationship to God. There is nothing insufficient in your standing before Him. Made perfect in Christ. Even as we face death one day, we do so with the certain hope of acceptance into God's presence. That's number four. Number five, through the Gospel, believers have the confidence of a great high priest. The confidence of a great high priest. Look at verse 24. The author gives a simple but powerful summary of what he has spent so much time teaching us. We have not come to the fiery presence of God at Sinai. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Friends, this is the ground floor of every Gospel blessing. Why can we enter God's presence? Because of Jesus' work to mediate a new covenant. Why do we participate in heaven's joy? Because of Jesus, our mediator. Why do we have security and certainty as God's people? Because the Lord Jesus Christ laid aside His heavenly glory, came to earth, lived a sinless life, only to then lay down His life in order to establish once and for all the promised new covenant of God. There is no greater confidence than this, friends. There is no greater confidence than this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him, Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. Through the Gospel, believers have the confidence of a great high priest. That's number five. Number six. Through the Gospel, believers have comfort from Christ's final sacrifice. Believers have comfort from Christ's final sacrifice. Again, verse 24. The author cannot mention the person of Christ without also highlighting the work of Christ. Look what he writes. We have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, but how did He establish that covenant? Not by thundering from a fiery mountain, but by shedding His own blood at the cross. And the blood He shed speaks with more comfort, more hope, and more grace 
than any sacrifice before. That's the takeaway of the reference to Abel. You'll remember that Abel was the first saint mentioned in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. It started with Abel. Abel offered to God an acceptable sacrifice through which he was counted what? Righteous. And Abel did this even though it cost him his life. Here in verse 24, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus' sacrifice is better than that. It's better than righteous Abel. Jesus' sacrifice makes the many righteous. And He does so through the power of His own perfect blood. Brothers and sisters, it's nearly impossible for us to fully grasp the glory and the grace that is on display in these verses. The blessings we've just considered are only scratching the surface of what could be said. There is always more to see in the Gospel. And that's what I want to emphasize at this point. There is always more to see in the Gospel. It is fascinating to me that the author spends time here at the end of the book recounting things he's already said. Think about it. He's already mentioned each of those truths before. And for some of them, he's done so in great detail. He spent four chapters on Jesus as the mediator and His sacrifice. And yet, here at the end, he comes back again. And he says, look at this glory. Look at this grace. Why does he do that? Why does he rehearse the same blessings again? Because there is always more to see in the Gospel of Christ. And our need to see it never ends. There is always another layer of grace to be found. There is always another degree of glory to be seen. So dwell here, brothers and sisters. Don't just breeze past this content with a little nibble from God's provision in Christ. Dwell here in the depths of what God has done. Make it your aim to regularly soak yourself in the riches of goodness and grace that are found in Christ Jesus. Rehearse the Gospel. Study the Gospel. Meditate on the Gospel. Preach it to yourself. This may not seem very practical in your life, but it is. Oh, how it is. That's why the author puts this here at the end. Because remembering the Gospel's blessings is one of the keys to maintaining your pace in the race of perseverance. Listen, I want my life to be different. You want your life to be different. I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. Don't you? Yes, amen, amen. How does that transformation happen? How do you get changed? How do you move from the old man to the new man? 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. How are you being transformed? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Seeing the glory of Christ. Where is the glory of Christ seen most clearly? In the Gospel. So dwell here. The more we taste of the Gospel, the more we want to taste. Because it's simply so good. And the more we want to taste, the more we run hard after the Lord Jesus. Do you see the connection? You see and then you run. Why would we turn aside to anything else when what we've been given in Christ is so great, so rich, and so satisfying? That's the effect here. Often our turning away to other things reveals not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak, as C.S. Lewis once said. 
We want to change. We want to be different. And therefore, we must labor to see and remember the gospel's greater blessings. That's the first mark of a faithful Christian. The faithful Christian remembers the gospel's greater blessings. So by God's grace, may we give ourselves to that kind of pursuit. Let's look now at the second mark of a faithful Christian. The faithful Christian recognizes the gospel's greater accountability. The faithful Christian recognizes the gospel's greater accountability. Look at verse 25. The author shifts from exposition in order to give us one final warning. Notice what he writes. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The idea of God speaking has been central to the entire book. Remember how Hebrews began. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So this final warning picks up on that opening truth. God has spoken His final definitive word in Christ. There is no other revelation to come, for there is no other revelation needed. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message of salvation. And therefore, we must be careful not to reject what God has spoken. That's the force of verse 25. The author is saying to us, recognize the greatness of what you heard. Recognize the accountability of this message. There is nothing greater than Christ, so do not turn away from Him. To refuse God's speaking in Christ is to reject the only hope of salvation for sinners like us. So see to it that you don't refuse Him. But the warning's not finished. The author goes on to remind us of the certainty of God's judgment. Look at the end of verse 25. If Israel did not escape when they refused God's Word, then there is certainly no possibility of escape for those who reject the Gospel of Christ. Friends, this is the necessary other side of the Gospel's supremacy, of the supremacy of Christ. Since there is nothing greater than the Gospel, then there is no hope of escape for those who reject the Gospel. To turn from Christ has eternal, devastating consequences. Then in verses 26 and 27, the author draws our attention to the very end, to the final judgment. He says, God's voice shook the earth at Sinai, but there is a day coming when God's voice will shake both the earth and heaven itself. That's an Old Testament image for the final judgment taken from the book of Haggai. It's an image for the last day. There is a great day coming, a final day, when God will thunder against this earth in a way that makes Sinai look like a puppet show. And on that day, only those who are hidden in the unshakable heavenly gospel of Christ will remain. If you do not know the Lord Jesus this morning, I pray this word would work in your life today. I pray the Spirit would open your eyes to see the reality of your life in light of what is coming. God's Word is clear. The Bible says we are all sinners, both in the things we have done and what we have not done. On our own, we're not searching for God. We're rebelling against Him and hating His name. 
And that means on our own, we have no hope to escape that great and final day. I want to be as clear as I can at this point. Outside of Christ, you will endure God's final judgment on your own. And that is a terrible reality. But for those who flee to Christ by faith, there is hope. There is salvation. The good news of the Gospel is that on the cross, the Lord Jesus took the wrath of God reserved for the people of God. He took the judgment we deserved and He bore it in His body on the tree. And therefore, those who trust in Him will be saved. Not because they deserve to be saved, but because Christ died in their place. In my place condemned, He stood bearing my punishment. So wherever you're at this morning, I pray each of us would hear God's Word spoken in Christ and respond as we ought. The Bible is saying that right now, this is the most significant thing happening in the universe. So listen. Listen. Plead with the Spirit to give you ears to hear. There is no escape for those who reject the Lord Jesus, but for those who trust Him, there is life everlasting with God in the heavenly city that we cannot even imagine. Oh, that God would give us ears to hear His Word as we ought. The faithful Christian recognizes the Gospel's greater accountability. That brings us to the final mark from this passage, verses 28 and 29. The faithful Christian responds to the Gospel with grateful, reverent worship. The faithful Christian responds to the Gospel with grateful, reverent worship. While the preceding warning is certainly sobering, that's not where our author ends. He ends with encouragement. Yes, God's judgment will shake the earth and heaven, but as God's people, we are destined to receive something unshakable. We are receiving God's kingdom, which will endure forever. God's kingdom is His redemptive rule and reign over all the earth. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overthrown. That's what we are receiving. What a timely reminder this is for us in the midst of our turbulent days. The kingdom of God cannot be toppled. There is no transition of power in the heavenly city. There is only and always the good, righteous, and just rule of God. And that is what we are receiving as His people. We don't have it in full yet. We are receiving it by faith in Christ. The world will shake. But our end is with God in His unshakable kingdom. After offering this encouragement, the author then gives us a closing exhortation. How should we respond to receiving this unshakable kingdom? The Gospel always demands a response. How should we respond? With gratitude, leading to reverent worship. That's what he's saying in verse 28. With gratitude, leading to reverent worship. Now, the connection here is essential. I want to make sure that we get this. The author is not talking about two separate responses, gratitude on the one hand and then worship on the other, as if they were two distinct things. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about a single response of gratitude that then produces worship. You see, we are prone to think of worship as something that is primarily about us. It is an action we must do or a particular experience we need to have. 
But the author of Hebrews is redefining our view of worship in verse 28. Worship is always responsive to who God is and what he, is, what he has done. Worship is always responsive. We hijack worship if we begin with ourselves. We short-circuit the response if we focus on what we need to do, or our needs, or our feelings, or our preferences, or our experience. Worship is always responsive to who God is and what He has done. Always. And that's why it must begin with gratitude. Because gratitude is entirely focused on God. By definition, gratitude is appreciation for a kindness I did not deserve. So when I cultivate gratitude toward God for the Gospel, I'm actually sowing the seeds for worship. I'm focusing my mind and my heart on who God is and what He has done. I'm expressing thanks for His grace that has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the unshakable kingdom of His beloved Son. And over time, as I sow those seeds of gratitude, thankfulness takes root and it bears the good fruit of pleasing worship to God. You see, gratitude is about more than saying thank you. Gratitude is the soil from which true worship springs. Grateful people are, uh, ungrateful people are not worshipful people. Think about for a moment, just think for a moment about the life of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel illustrates this point in very vivid color. So think for a moment about Israel in the book of Exodus. They experienced the grace and the kindness of God in a way that they did not deserve. God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out to be His people. And they were in the process of receiving a promised land. I mean, as they're going across the Red Sea, that's what they can be saying. We are receiving a promised land. But then something horrible happened as Israel was journeying towards that promised land. And instead of expressing gratitude, they grumbled. Right? Instead of focusing on who God is and what He had done, they began to focus on themselves. Their own needs. Their own wants. Why don't we have enough food? Why can't we have any meat? It was better back in Egypt. You see, there was no gratitude for what God has done. Instead, there was just this consistent grumbling. Just grumbling. Now, you might think, but that's not that big of a deal. Everybody complains about things every once in a while. But that misses the end of the story. Consider the fruit of their grumbling. What happened to Israel at the foot of Sinai? They rejected the living God. And they made their own gods. Golden calves that they could see and touch. Friends, those golden calves didn't just spring out of the fire like Aaron said. They didn't just spring out of the fire. They sprang from Israel's ungratitude. Their ungrateful hearts. Their ingratitude. You see, that's the tragic lesson from Israel in the wilderness. Their grumbling prepared the way for their idolatry. Their ingratitude led to their apostasy. That's why the author of Hebrews puts gratitude first in his response. Gratitude for who God is and what He has done is the soil of pleasing worship. So without gratitude, we'll end up precisely where Israel did. Mired in idolatry and enslaved to the worst taskmaster of all, ourselves. So I ask you, I ask myself, I ask all of us, is gratitude a consistent feature of your Christian life? 
Are you pursuing and cultivating a grateful heart? Do you regularly pause to consider and express thanks for who God is and what He has done in the Gospel? That simple act of gratitude is more than saying thank you. It is sowing the seed of pleasing worship and over time, it will bear fruit of a life more devoted to God. Gratitude. And if you don't know what to be thankful for, then just go back to verses 22 through 24. There's a whole week's worth of gratefulness there. By God's grace, let's cultivate grateful hearts in light of the gospel, for that's the pathway to worship. One, one final piece for pleasing worship. One final thing. Worship must also be marked by reverence and awe. You see it there at the end of verse 28. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? That which is marked by reverence and awe. Where does that reverence come from? Look at verse 29. It comes from God's character. For our God is a consuming fire. Now that might seem a strange way to end this passage to us, but it's a necessary point. God does not change. God does not change. His holiness was on fierce display at Sinai, and that holiness remains who He is. He is a consuming fire. Friends, we must never mistake flippancy for gospel confidence. They're not the same thing. Yes, we draw near. And yes, we are confident because of Christ, but we're never flippant. We always draw near mindful that the God whom we approach is the Holy One, the one true and living God. Even in our praise and in our love and in our service, we recognize God's greatness and His purity, and that produces in us reverence and awe. It's not trembling like at Sinai, but it is reverence like the Lord Jesus Himself displayed in the garden when He said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. That's reverence. And this too should deepen our gratitude. Think about it. We have come into the presence of the all-consuming God and yet we are not consumed. We are not destroyed. How can that be? We're sinful just like Old Testament Israel. I grumble all the time just like the Israelites did. So why am I not consumed? Because we have not come to Mount Sinai but to Mount Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, the precious blood of Christ that speaks a better word than any spoken before. So, marks of a faithful Christian. Remember the gospel's greater blessings. Recognize the gospel's greater accountability and respond with grateful, reverent worship. As we go out today, may God give us hearts that cherish the gospel with gratitude and may the result be lives of pleasing worship that glorify our great God. Amen. Let's pray.